The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 28. I'm going to read a few verses of it now before the children's sermon, and then we'll read the rest of the passage during the, the body of the sermon proper. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men went with him and they came to the woman by night. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. He said, tomorrow you and your sons will be with with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. The story we just read shows us what happens to a person who ignores and disobeys God's word. The story of King Saul is the story of one who wouldn't obey God's word and his life is a fall into worse and worse and worse sin. The first thing that we see is that Israel's enemies, the Philistines, have brought a huge army against Israel. And King Saul is scared. He wants God to help him, to save him and his army. But he, he will not love and serve and worship God. He wants God to serve him. When things are okay... Saul doesn't want to hear from God or about God, but now that his life is in danger, well, he wants God to come help him. And God is not something that we can use to get what we want. Saul thought that he could make God talk to him by using a witch to talk to the spirit of Samuel. Samuel was dead, and God will not be treated that way. God is holy. God is righteous, and that means that God will not let men use him like a tool for their sin. Saul had always refused to be sorry for his sins, and, he, and so God refused to give him help. In his wild fear, Saul did the most sinful thing he could possibly do. He went to a witch. You see, witchcraft and magic are, are not toys or funny things like movies and cartoons make them look. They are very, very evil things that God hates. We must never Never play with things that God hates. We must love what he loves and hate what he hates. When Saul was at the witch's house, the devil appeared to her and pretended to be Samuel, the great prophet. Saul really, really wanted to talk to Samuel. But you can't talk with someone who isn't dead. Someone who is dead, the dead believers, are in heaven. The devil, pretending to be Samuel, said to Saul, Look, God won't listen to you because you always ignore him and disobey. You and your sons are going to get killed in battle tomorrow. Now, of course, the devil didn't know this, but only God knows the future. But the devil could easily guess what might happen and guess that Saul's army would be beaten because the Philistine army was so much bigger. 
When Saul heard this, he fell flat on the ground on his face. He was so frightened he couldn't stand up. And when his men tried to help him up, they tried to give him some food and he wouldn't eat. He lost all will to live. He just wanted to die. And that's what I was saying earlier, that this is the end of anyone and everyone who refuses to listen to the word of God. They don't want to hear God's word when things are fine, but when they have trouble, then they'll want God's help. And when they hear how God's law is against them, they lose all hope and wish to die. Only dying won't make things better. It'll only make things worse because then they'll go to hell and suffer God's anger forever. And that's how dangerous sin is. God's word warns us that sin is this dangerous, that it lies to us. It, it looks fun, but in the end, it destroys us forever. And our story also teaches us that God has spoken to us in his Bible. That's where we must go to find out what is right and what we should do. We must never try to use the things that God has forbidden to find out what we should do. Things like witchcraft or magic. The powers of, of witches or magic is the power of the devil, God's enemy. And if we try to use that power, we make ourselves God's enemies too. Well, I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we'll learn more about these things. And we're going to pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May the Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. The last clause of Heidelberg Catechism, question 26, reads, He will make whatever evils he sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing, being a faithful father. The next question tells us that all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Whenever God sends any form of adversity upon us, we are permitted to find ways of alleviating our suffering. If you have a headache, you're permitted as a Christian to take an aspirin. Whatever lawful means there are, you are permitted by God's word to try. But if lawful means are not available, or if they fail to relieve your suffering, then you must patiently bear it as the will of God. Some means of handling adversity are strictly forbidden to the child of God. It's natural to seek relief under the pressure of trials. The problem is that if no lawful means present themselves, then we're tempted to use means which are unlawful, means which God has forbidden. Forbidden either by precept or by inference from his precepts. And it's easy to deceive ourselves that what we're doing is right under these circumstances, even though we would readily condemn it on, as wrong under normal circumstances. And that a principle applies to our text today. In fact, it applied last week too. In one manner of speaking, chapters 27 and 28 are parallels. 
In chapter 27, David, attempting to mitigate his suffering, had recourse to forbidden means. You'll search scripture in vain for permission or an inference from God's law that when one is under extreme stress, it is lawful and okay to make affinity with God's enemies. And it is certainly clear from scripture that consulting a witch or a medium is forbidden by God. In the cases both of David and Saul, we find men in desperate conditions having recourse to forbidden means of alleviating their struggles. And that brings us to our outline. We'll read the passage as we go along. So number one, desperate, verses three to 10, despairing, number two, 11 to 19, and number three, debilitated, 20 through 25. So now for our first point, desperate, let's read verses three to 10. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shudim. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Well, the first thing I want us to notice is the battlefield. This wasn't one of the usual Philistine battlefields, a valley in Benjamin or Judah somewhere. This time, the Philistines chose a wider place, the great plain of Jezreel. Shunem was on one side and Mount Gilboa was on the other. And from Mount Gilboa, you could see the whole army. Its sheer size would dishearten Israel. And that was the point. But this was a historically significant, or shall I say, religiously significant location as well. This was where Barak, under similar disadvantage, had routed the Canaanites. In this very plain, Gideon destroyed the Midianite army. It is nothing for God to save by many or by few. Couldn't this be one of the days that Moses foretold when he said that one shall chase a thousand and two shall put ten thousand to flight? But Saul felt that God wasn't with him, so he couldn't count on the divine aid experienced by his forefathers. As Saul looks out over the Philistine host, he realizes that they far outnumber the army of Israel. His despair can be seen in his response. He called all Israel. He literally drafted every single fighting age man in the whole country. Now Saul no longer had a royal right to inquire of God. The Lord had transferred this royal access to God's will to David. And therefore, when Saul tried to inquire of God by, means, by the means that God had always used in the past, he got no response. Moreover, God had spoken to him many times in the past, and he had consistently cast God's word behind his back. You, know, you don't want to listen? Fine, I won't talk. 
In our text today, we find Saul taking recourse to forbidden means of alleviating his troubles. And just so that we're clear, let me quote you a couple of passages of Scripture that Saul would have readily had at his disposal. Exodus 22.18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Leviticus 19.31, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 18, 10 and 11. There shall not be found among you anyone who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. Now let's back up a couple of steps to put everything in place. Our text informs us that there was a time while Samuel was still alive and associating with Saul in an official capacity, that Saul went on a crusade to purge paganism out of Israel. Under Saul's guidance, he was applying God's law, as we read a second ago in Exodus 22:18. Now, I think there's an important observation that will help us understand this, is that Old Testament Israel was a combination church and state. Also, this transition from the era of the judges to the monarchy, universally portrayed in Scripture as an improvement, was a transition from democracy, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, to theocracy, the Lord is your king. It was also a transition from Israel behaving like tenants in their own land to behaving like its masters. The change to the monarchy meant that there could no longer be any toleration of false religion. Of course, I'd love to go off on a long tangent about the myth of separation of church and state, but neither our text nor time constraints permit it, so that'll have to wait for another day. Under Saul's guidance, or under Samuel's guidance, Saul was enacting Exodus 22:18, employing the death penalty against witches, mediums, soothsayers, fortune tellers, etc. This crusade was real on the part of Samuel, but it was a mere formality on the part of Saul. He just got carried away with his zeal without understanding the spiritual significance of what he was doing. We find a similar case in Israel some 200 years later in the northern kingdom of Israel and it's King Jehu. He killed someone from the household of evil King Ahab, and somewhere along the line, it was brought to his attention that Elijah the prophet had foretold the eradication of Ahab's entire family line. Well, emboldened by this knowledge, Jehu went out and hunted down every member of Ahab's family in order to put them to death. He describes his own actions as his zeal for the Lord. He destroyed the altars of Baal. And executed the priests of Baal. Sounds like a real revival. However, Scripture tells us that he didn't remove the golden calves which King Jeroboam had set up in Dan and Beersheba. So like Jehu, Saul purged the land of a certain type of idolatry. And I can't help but think that this was the stinger in the tail of Saul's rebuke, Samuel's rebuke in 1523 when he says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. In other words, Saul, you have eradicated one form 
of witchcraft, but you're engaged in a functional equivalent. It's one of those odd things that men who are rebellious in heart against God often go through a lot of mechanical service trying to obtain God's favor when their back is against the wall. Up to this point, Saul has repeatedly rejected God's will and belittled his favor. Now when it's obvious that life hangs in the balance, he wants God's favor. And we could say to Saul what we could say to many a man today, don't you realize that your iniquities have separated between you and your God? Your sins have hid his face from you. Nothing you do will have the least effect on him until you own your sin. God says, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. And this is what you cannot, will not do. One genuine tear of repentance could have saved thousands of Israelites from a bloody battlefield death. But it was too late for Saul. And so we find him stooping to the most humiliating expedient to which a man can stoop. Selling his soul. Once upon a time, Saul had directed his zeal against this kind of paganism. But oh, how the mighty have fallen. This is what he is reduced to. The great king who stood head and shoulders above every other man in Israel, whose right-hand man was the great prophet Samuel. Now, he's wearing a disguise, slinking around in the shadows, entering the house of a witch who lives on Coat Hanger Alley. He has gone from the heights of Mount Everest to the depths of Challenger Deep. Now, you may be tempted to object. Well, God wouldn't answer him. I mean, can you fault him for going to these lengths? Now, that overlooks the obvious fact that nothing but judgment arrests the sinner's career of evil. If the sinner is not judged, he will simply continue in wickedness. Saul's behavior is not a reaction to God's judgment. It is justification for it. That brings us to our second point, despairing, and we will read verses 11 through 19. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Saul could find no comfort in heaven or on earth, and so he went to the very gates of hell 
for help. Because God justly refused to be inquired of by Saul, Saul took recourse to forbidden means. Oh, for a talk with Samuel. But Samuel is dead. When Samuel was alive, he lived in Ramah, which wasn't far from Gibeah where Saul lived. Samuel presided there over a school of prophets. And never once did Saul ever go there to consult Samuel. Now that Samuel is dead, oh, could I only speak with him again? Bring me up, Samuel. And this is exactly how sinners behave. They will persecute and silence God's ministers when they're alive, only to long for them when they're gone. Dives says, send Lazarus to my father's house. The graves of the prophets have monuments. You hated them while they were alive, but honor their memory when they're dead. Now, I want to make a couple observations about the nature of witchcraft in general. First of all, it's pure fraud. There's no such thing as actual powers of nature over which men may gain control to manipulate. However, what it is in practice does not negate what it is in intention. By intention, whether the practitioner believes it sincerely or not, it is a supposed access to the realm of spiritual powers that are not of God. The only true spiritual power there is, is God. Anything else making this claim is demonic. Witchcraft, therefore, whether genuine or pretend, is demonic in nature. Period. Full stop. It is an entertainment. It is an innocent fun. Seances, Ouija boards, no less than prayers to and for the dead, are strictly forbidden by God. Exhibit A, Exodus 22:18, where God prescribes a death sentence for such acts. Now, you notice that we aren't told what the witch did. Scripture forbids such things, and God, knowing man's perverse curiosity, didn't reveal the riches the witch's rituals. Had these things been included in the narrative, you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody would be trying them out. Acts 19.19 records this of several converts in Ephesus. Quote, Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them all in the sight of all. By means of this book burning, God removed that content from the earth, preventing the evil from being passed on to future generations who would pry into the mysteries of iniquity. History has given us other such examples. The witch tells Saul that she saw gods ascending out of the earth. And Saul eagerly asks, what does he look like? You'll notice he isn't scared. And this is judicial hardening. God has hardened Saul's heart as judgment for his persistent rebellion. Behold the deceitfulness of sin. He is standing unarmed in the very black presence of evil itself, and he's not afraid. Now let us be clear. It wasn't Samuel that appeared to the witch. God permitted Satan to impersonate Samuel. Scripture says that they who will not receive the love of the truth are given up to a strong delusion to believe a lie. It obviously couldn't have been Samuel, and for a number of reasons. Number one, God had refused to answer Saul by the very means that he himself had ordained. 
There's no way that God would be cajoled into answering Saul by forbidden means, by a craft for which God had commanded the death penalty. Secondly, we read that the spirits supposedly ascended out of the earth. Whereas scripture says that the spirits of the righteous upon death go up, Ecclesiastes 3.21. It would imply that it was in the power of the witch, by the assistance of the devil, to call the souls of saints out of heaven. And fourthly, it would imply that God would permit his saints in heaven to be summoned by witches and mediums. If God wouldn't answer Saul by a living prophet or priest, it's pretty far-fetched to think that God would answer him by a dead saint. The text does give us proof that this was an evil spirit. Number one, it received worship from Saul. Verse 14 tells us that Saul bowed down with his face to the ground before this evil spirit. Many times in Scripture, we find God's children overawed by the presence, bowing before angels. And in every case, we find the angels rebuking them, saying, Stand up. I am your fellow servant. Worship God. Secondly, the Spirit rebukes Saul for his many sins, but conveniently omits this one, that he was asking counsel of one who had a familiar spirit, something for which God's law commanded death. The true Samuel as zealous as he was for God's honor, would never have neglected such a glaring sin, especially since now he has caught Saul in the very act. Thirdly, the spirit pretends to be disquieted and brought up. And that's contrary to Scripture. Ecclesiastes 12.7 tells us that the souls of the righteous return to God. Isaiah 57.2 says that they're at peace. And Revelation 14.3 tells us that they rest from their labors. Every way that the Spirit presents Himself is contrary to the Scriptures. Of course, the only remaining question is, well, then how could the devil so accurately foretell the future events as we see in our text? Well, that's not a particularly weighty objection. Evil spirits are documented in Scripture, even in pagan oracles, to have accurately predicted future events. God has been pleased to reveal such things to them and permit them to be the instruments of revealing such things as part of His damning judgments upon the wicked. But besides that, the devil could have easily guessed most of these things based on known facts. It was no secret that God had rejected Saul and that God had intended to bring him to ruin. That there was an innumerable host of Philistines just on the other side of the hill. That Israel was outmanned, outgunned, and bereft of God's protection. You don't have to be a prophet or a genius to see that Saul's jig is up. It would have been easy to guess, considering the present posture of the two armies, that the ruin of the Israelites was at hand. And now we'll come to our third section, debilitated, and we'll read verses 20 through 25. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. 
So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. The biblical formula always says that if the sinner repents and takes refuge in the atoning sacrifice, then God will forgive his sins. So why, Saul, when you felt so lost, did you not humble yourself before God, confess your sins and repent? Why, Saul, why won't you just fall in the dust before God? Well, somehow, Saul felt that he couldn't. One of the most frightening effects of sin is its deadening power on the conscience. The heart becomes hard so that it cannot bend or change course. Saul's long career of sinfulness had had this effect. It had hardened his heart until it was incapable of repentance. He was sealed unto damnation. There are times that the best thing a person can do is weep, but he finds himself unable to. There are times that the best thing a sinner can do is fall before God and plead for mercy, but that is the thing he cannot do. A long course of rebellion against God had rendered Saul unable of doing the one thing that could have saved him and his people. So let this be a warning to us. This is the terrible effect of loving sin. It dries up the fountain of contrition so that tears of repentance cannot flow. It stiffens the knees so that they cannot bow. It blinds the eyes so that they cannot see the Savior. It closes the ears so that they cannot hear the call of mercy. It drives men to wells without water, to refuges of lies, to physicians with no medicine, and to gods who have no salvation. The devil's manifest intention was to drive Saul to further despair and self-murder. Had this been the true Samuel, he would have told Saul to repent, make peace with God, recall David from exile. The devil who had been Saul's tempter was now his torturer. Saul had betrayed his master, the lawfully anointed David, just as Judas later betrayed David's greater son. Saul went from being a type of Christ to an antichrist, from king of Israel to a Judas who wanted to kill the king. And Saul resigned himself to death. It's important to understand that Saul is unrepentant. It's not that he's trying to come to God in faith, but God is refusing to be heard. Saul still has no faith in God. If he survives this battle with the Philistines, he is still going to set himself against God and against his anointed. Saul does not want out of the bondage of sin. He wants out of a pickle. And he wants God's church to serve him in his sin. Saul won't bow the knee to Christ by accepting the anointing of David. And God's word declares, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God's word damns witches to eternal hell. And Saul wants God to violate his own word and honor him by speaking to him 
through a witch. God wasn't stiff-arming Saul. Saul was reaping what he had sown. So in conclusion, let's take the warning of this text seriously. We may desperately want to change our condition. We may desperately want to know what the future holds. We may desperately want to extricate ourselves from some adversity or other. But God has appointed means. And when these means are unavailable to us or don't solve our problem, we may not, we must not attempt means which God has forbidden. You know, several times I have asserted that 1 Samuel 2.6 is the theme of this entire book. The Lord kills and makes alive. We are seeing Saul inexorably drawn to judgment, like a moth to a flame. And Saul's life is a cautionary tale. He was judicially hardened by God. He was a believer in name only. He was right in the middle of the church's life, and yet he was a total stranger to the grace of God because he loved sin. You can put a man in the church, but you can't put church in the man. Proverbs 14, 14 warns that the one who habitually turns back from God's ways will be filled with his own ways. This is an inviolable law of God's kingdom. They that honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Let us pray.